Hello, and welcome to Notes on History, a podcast by a historian who has no idea how to make a podcast. I'm Paul Statzel. In the hope that Notes on History is listened to by people who actually have lives, I'm assuming that no one maintains transcripts of previous recordings. But if you did, a quick review would show that in discussing just two topics in the past few weeks, I've discussed not just aspects of history, but I've touched on a couple other disciplines as well. The historian studies written evidence to create conclusions about the past, but the good historian also knows a little bit about other fields of study. Mythology, for example. Mythology is something I've touched on a couple of times. It's a related field, but it's not strictly history. The reason it's related is because we can use mythology to help us understand the history at hand. Well, there are a number of other disciplines that a historian has to be aware of in order to do what a historian does. A historian is not a numismatist, but knowing something about historic coins can help a historian draw conclusions about economic conditions. A historian is not an economist, but knowing a little something of the basics of economics can help a historian explain the context of decisions people make. Uh, spoiler alert for the next episode, by the way. A historian is not a cartographer, but listening to a historian who doesn't understand maps can be like listening to a doctor ask you to open your mouth so that he can take your temperature rectally. Today, and continuing for a couple more episodes after this, I'm going to look at several related disciplines with which historians need to be somewhat familiar with. More specifically, today, I'm going to look at archaeology. Let's look at what archaeology is and what archaeology isn't. Archaeology is the study of the physical artifacts left behind by people who lived in the past. What it is, is spending long hours indoors examining those artifacts and papers about those artifacts in the most minute detail. What it is not, is carefully putting just the right amount of sand in place of a golden idol and then running like hell from a giant well-placed boulder. Archaeology is, a dozen volunteers, i.e. people who don't get paid, spending weeks in extreme hot or cold, slowly removing millimeter after millimeter of soil in order to uncover, wow, more soil of a slightly different shade of brown. Archaeology is not teaming up with Sean Connery in order to outsmart the Nazis by drinking from the right cup, all the while rocking out to the musical stylings of John Williams. Archaeology is spending two decades waiting to discover evidence that Roman soldiers wore underwear, followed by four decades of telling people about that time you found evidence that Roman soldiers wore underwear. I'm going to talk a little bit about why movies like Indiana Jones don't portray archaeology any better than CSI portrays criminal investigation. But first, I'm going to talk about two examples of what archaeology actually is. The first example is from my own personal experience at a small dig site in New York's southern tier, and the second is the example of an archaeologist who made the aforementioned and actually quite seriously remarkable discovery that Roman soldiers wore underwear. Now, I know many of you are worried that somehow I won't be able to inexplicably drag Mark Twain into this discussion, but fear not, denizens of the internet, I've got you covered. Mark Twain was one of Americana's greatest literary figures, and yes, this does actually tie in. For all the attention given to the mighty Mississippi and King Arthur's court, 
He actually wrote many of his great works in a, a little one-room octagonal hut just outside of Elmira, New York. While studying at Elmira College, I had the opportunity to take part in an ongoing archaeological dig on the property of the Mark Twain home. Uh, if memory serves, and in the interest of specificity, I, I think it actually was his wife's home. This was more than 20 years ago, so bear with me. The dig was supervised by one of my very favorite professors, a, uh, an associate professor of classical civilizations named Dr. Heidi Dierichs. Getting to the dig site involves driving through these backcountry roads, uh, through these forested hills that, that surround the city of Elmira, and I use the term city very loosely. It's the kind of place they film car commercials in and then tell you not to drive like this because they're filming a professional on a closed course, you know. I actually just looked this up on Google Maps uh, earlier today, and it seems much closer to the town than I remember it being, but that's, I guess, what a couple decades will do. Well, the house itself sits at the foot of one of these hills. You go around the back and start climbing up the hill to get to the dig site. About halfway up the hill, there's this octagonal outline on the left side of the path. It's, it's actually where that one-room study used to sit until it was donated and moved on down to the college grounds back in the 1950s. The dig site itself was in an old cistern, basically a stone-lined hole in the ground about the size of a small swimming pool, and it had been filled in with dirt. We spent some time mapping the site before we started digging. We had practiced this back on campus where the, uh, you know, before the dig actually started. This was very important because any artifacts found needed to be plotted on the map for future reference, and making a very detailed and accurate map in the days before really accurate GPS systems was difficult and involved some more than basic math. But once the map was created, we marked out a grid pattern over the, uh, the actual dig site by placing stakes in the ground and trying, uh, we would tie string or maybe it was some kind of ribbon, again, memory fades. This meant that walking on the dig site meant you had to be very careful to step over the grid lines in order to leave them exactly in place. Once the grid pattern was laid down, we started digging. Now, at first, this was easy because after the last dig season, the previous students had laid a plastic sheet down when they were done, then filled it in back in, you know, with the excess dirt that they had removed from the cistern. So we could take over right where they left off simply by removing all the soil down to the level of this plastic sheet. What we found underneath that was a very thick layer of ash. I'm talking a, a foot or more. It wasn't like the kind of ash you have in the morning after a camp out. It was thick and it was compacted. And when you sifted through it, it made this uh, dry crinkling sound that you could, you could feel it in the roots of your teeth or in the core of your spine. Sort of a, a nails on chalkboard effect for me anyway. And sprinkled in with all this ash were nails. Lots of nails. Some of them had rusted away a long time ago and were just reddish brown stains in the ash. Each nail or, or stain had to be placed on the map, and each nail was then taken out separately, carried downhill to the staging area at the house, and cataloged. Some of us worked up at the dig, and some of us worked down at the staging area. Underneath the ash was a thin layer of rust. It wasn't, it wasn't rusty like the nails. It was rusted metal in thin flakes, and as you peeled each flake away, it didn't take too long to figure out what they were. They were bottle caps. And each bottle cap, or sometimes clump of bottle caps, was plotted on the map, taken out separately, and carried downhill to the staging area. Underneath the bottle caps was glass, sometimes entire bottles, but mostly shards. Sharp shards. It was a miracle we weren't all sent to the hospital with tetanus. And each bottle, broken or otherwise, was 
plotted on the map, taken out separately, and carried downhill to the staging area. So we have a layer of broken bottles, a layer of rusted bottle caps, and a thick layer of ash and nails. Now, as it happened, there was a dairy farm on the other side of the hill with a barn that we couldn't account for. It, it just disappeared from the records that we had available to us. And it was pretty clear where all this debris came from. You know, the debris that was plotted on the map, taken out separately, and carried downhill to the staging area. A good hypothesis was that the cistern had been filled up with garbage from the dairy farm, uh, followed by the debris from tearing down this barn, and then burned. Nothing earth-shattering, but this was tedious. None of us dined on chilled monkey brains with Harrison Ford, and no, at no time, and I mean no time at all during this entire process, did Boris Karloff rise up out of these ashes to try to kill us. Not even once, you lazy jerk. Well, what does this mean for the historian? Well, obviously, it means that only famous archaeological sites are worthy of Karloff's attention, but only slightly less important than that. I mean to show that much of what an archaeologist does is of relevance to the local historian. The History Channel is unlikely to run a two-hour-long primetime special about the discovery of dairy farm debris at the Mark Twain home in Elmira, New York. However, a local historian or a family historian looking for evidence of the inner workings of that particular dairy farm might be interested in that nail-laden ash. And I can tell you from my work with a couple small museums in a few different states that Sometimes the placement of very specific buildings on a site can have a big impact on the stories we tell about the people who were there and what their daily lives were like. Many archaeologists spend their time dealing with local affairs. Local American Indian tribes who are interested to learn where their settlements existed prior to their removal to the West. Uh, families researching their genealogy who want to know where an ancestor's shop or house was. That's a common one that I get. Um, as a genealogist. On a side note, the way some people's faces light up when you can show them the actual home their ancestors lived in, that's just plain neat. I love doing that. And of course, there are construction firms. Uh, just hours before I recorded my original presentation on this topic, however many years ago that was, uh, I had read a news story of a new health clinic in Musselburgh, Scotland. And I, and I think that's what prompted me to, to talk about this the first time, you know, actually. Construction of the clinic had been delayed uh, because of the discovery of Roman remains. Archaeologists were going to perform a quick excavation, then allow the construction workers to get back to work. Uh, I don't think it was as quick as they ended up, or as quick as they thought it was going to be, but the excavations uh, ended up turning up some really neat stuff, by the way. What about widely marketable history? I, I loved working at the Dick site in Elmira, but what we did isn't going to end up on the front page of Time magazine. What we did ended up being plotted on a map, taken out separately, and carried downhill to the staging area. What Robin Burley found at Vindolanda, however, is of great importance to popular historians. Speaking of Roman remains in Britain, um, Vindolanda is part of the system of fortifications known collectively as Hadrian's Wall. An in-depth history of the wall itself would not be appropriate right now, although I think it's neat. But archaeologists are interested in the wall for a number of reasons, and Vindolanda in particular is interesting because of the work done by the Burley family. Several generations of the Burley family have been involved in the archaeological work being done there. In 1973, Robin Burley, who you might recognize from just about any documentary you've ever seen on Hadrian's Wall ever, 
discovered a number of thin strips of wood. By his own account, he had been working at the dig site in the mud. Uh, Northern England is nothing. It is chilly, wet, and muddy. When the strips of wood were cleaned, they were found to be writing tablets, letters written by and to the soldiers and families who lived at the fortress. The tablets contained military orders, they contained correspondence with friends, and they contained all sorts of different things. They're the same kinds of letters soldiers today write to their families. All, the, all of a sudden, uh, for the historian, Hadrian's Wall, this distant, far-off, crappiest of all assignments possible for a Roman legionary, sprang into the real world. There was an invitation to a birthday party. It's the earliest known document written by a Roman woman. Uh, there was evidence that the Roman legionaries, who were far from their homes, looked down on the local townies. And, of course, there was a letter from one soldier asking his family for a care package, specifically some new underwear. For the historian, the amount of information here was just astounding. Information on how the average Roman wrote, meaning vocabulary and grammar, can give historians a clue as to how Latin was evolving. Not just what form of Latin was being spoken, but the tablets give an indication of how literate the average Roman infantryman was, which, in turn, gives us a better idea of how literate the average person in the ancient world was. They were surprisingly literate, by the way. We're talking about a rate of literacy that wouldn't be seen again until the 18th and 19th century. Information on the spending habits of the soldiers gives historians an idea of what the economy was like and how far goods actually traveled in the Roman world. Robin Burley, uh, admittedly through a, a huge dose of luck, allowed historians to greatly expand their knowledge on a wide range of topics. He did it through patience, hard work, and study. He never outsmarted Nazis to do it. He never found himself running through an ancient temple alongside Abbott and Costello or Brendan Fraser, clinging to a rare manuscript that he decoded using a nursery rhyme his long-lost mother had taught him, or anything like that. So, why does popular culture portray archaeology in such a preposterously, comically inaccurate way? I said earlier that the movies portray archaeology as inaccurately as TV shows like CSI and NCIS portray criminal investigations. You, you've seen these shows that where computers with Star Trek-like operating systems make these cool sounds every time a smooth-talking superstar cop pulls up a suspect on a computer screen using nothing but the suspect's DNA, which, of course, he got from a penny that that criminal handed, handed to him four years ago. You don't see a slightly pudgy, middle-aged, bald guy sitting behind a desk filling out a billion forms in order to pull a suspect's DMV records. But Baldy is the real hero. Well, the same goes for movies like Indiana Jones. Great cinema, really. Almost half of all Indiana Jones movies are among the best films ever made. Star Wars can't make that claim. But sneaking into a booby-trap-laden temple in a jungle and stealing a priceless golden idol without applying for the necessary permits? Whatever country that temple was in would have had their ambassador at Indy's office door within a week demanding the return of that idol. At least in the last crusade, the Nazis bribed the local officials with a new car. Quite simply... Would you pay 8 or $10 to sit in a theater for two hours watching Harrison Ford reading archaeological journals and making notes in the margins of books? I mean, maybe that girl from the first movie who wrote on her eyelids would, but I, I certainly wouldn't. 
Archaeology has a lot to offer the historian. It supplements history, just as history can supplement archaeology, which is a topic for another day. A historian needs to know what archaeology is, something he or she won't learn from the movie, certainly, and needs to keep up on the latest discoveries in the field in order to shed new light on topics of historical interest. While most archaeological discoveries are of a primarily local interest, such as the dig site in Elmira, New York, others can have profound worldwide influence on how historians approach their topics of study. Speaking of which, for anyone interested, many of the Vindolanda tablets can be seen online in detail at Vindolanda Tablets Online. If you would like to see them, have a look. You, you know how to search the Google, so you don't need me to tell you that. I'm happy to say that the Vindolanda Tablets Online website does not include pits full of asps, catacombs full of rats, or Nazis falling off of cliffs in tanks. On another brief side note, I am reliably informed that Notes on History is now available to be heard on Spotify, iHeartRadio, and supposedly iTunes, but I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm still working hard deep in the podcast minds to get this on Google, but hopefully that will be coming soon. And of course, questions or comments are always welcome. You can email me at paul at notesonhistory.org. I'm Paul Stetzel. Thanks for listening.